0: Today, we're starting a new series. We're going to be looking just for the next couple months at the letter that perhaps has made more history than any other letter in history. I know I said history a lot just now. I'm talking about the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Rome. We call it Romans. And we're going to be looking at Romans just for the next couple months in order to get the Big picture of what Paul is presenting as the good news, this this world-changing news. He was he was hoping to get to Rome, the capital city, the most powerful city on earth, in order to send that news west. Paul had been coming from the east of Rome, uh, and he he wanted that news to go west all the way to the ends of the earth, which for Paul was Spain, um, by the way. <laughs> After Spain, it's water, and that's, you know, nope, apparently there's nothing past that. Um, so that's what Paul was hoping. Get to Rome, uh, get the message out, and send this message to the ends of the earth. So today, we're starting the letter that he sent ahead of himself to Rome. So now here a reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. From Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant of David, with reference to the flesh, who was appointed the son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and our apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, among all the Gentiles on behalf of his name. You also are among them called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those loved by God in Rome, called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, is my witness that I continually remember you, and I always ask in my prayers if perhaps now at least I may succeed in visiting you according to the will of God. For I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually comforted by one another's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often intended to come to you and was prevented until now, so that I may have some fruit even among you, just as I already have among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, I am eager also to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel." For it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, we're listening to you. Would you speak to us about your word? Lord, as we study this letter, we long for our eyes to be opened, our ears to be opened, our hearts to be opened, that we could see and hear and believe what you're doing in us, what you want to do through us, what you're doing in the world around us. Have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, uh, this is one of the most influential letters ever written. And Paul hoped it would be really influential. You know, he, he wanted to make sort of a name, state his his whole argument, tell them who he was and what he was about, so that when he got to Rome, it would spread from there. That was his hope. I don't think he had any anticipation that You know, 2,000 years later, in a different language on the other side of the world, people would still be talking about this letter that he sent ahead of himself to Rome. I don't imagine he thought that that would be happening. And yet, this letter has changed the course of history in several ways. I mean, if you just go look back through church history, there are some big names who say reading Romans was the moment that everything changed for them. I'm talking about Augustine or Martin Luther, John Wesley, Karl Barth, and even Littleton Christian Church. All of us were transformed by this letter. Augustine was a philosopher. He was kind of a playboy. He was looking for something that would would fill the empty space in his heart. And when he had reached the end of his rope, he heard a child's voice in the yard next to his singing through the fence, take up and read, take up and read. And for whatever reason, Paul, or not Paul, Augustine assumed he was talking about the letter to the Romans. And so he opens this letter and he starts reading. It transformed him. Martin Luther was a feverish, guilt-ridden monk. He, he had, you know, he had converted, you know, he was pursuing a law degree, had converted when, when he got caught in a storm and cried out to St. Anne to save him, and, and he didn't die, and so he became a monk, and he worked so hard, and no matter what he did, he never felt like he was doing enough until he read Romans anew. Later, John Wesley was reading what Martin Luther wrote about Romans. Wesley was already a minister, but he was kind of he was kind of a mess. He had been in the US for a while and, and he had actually tried to use his his uh, clerical, you know, his pastoral authority to make a girl marry him and it didn't work out. Um, so he's sailing back to Eng, you know to, to England and he meets some people and they, they give him what Martin Luther wrote about Romans, and he says, "My heart was strangely warmed." And he goes on to be one of the most influential preachers in history. A young German scholar, Karl Barth, was in the U.S. again. He was uh, working in a seminary, studying. This is in in the early 1900s, and everyone, you know, all of the theologians, all of the Christian people, they think. The world is great and it's only getting better like god's plan is working you know global peace has arrived and then of course in the early 19 teens world war one breaks out carl bart is despondent and he finds himself sitting under a tree just crying out to god what to do and he opens his bible and reads the letter to the romans he later writes a book on Romans that uh, that historians say was like dropping a bomb on the sort of theological thinking of the day. It totally transformed him. This letter has changed the course of many lives, and on a, you know a smaller historical scale, this this letter was actually the first letter that uh, that I preached through when I first became the the main preacher of this church uh, many years ago. I started preaching in this letter in 2008. At that time, it took us 30 months to get through. <laughs> so, two months is going to be different. But as we went through it, as we went through it in detail, here's what we discovered. We had been a community, and really I had been a leader, that thought by our own fervor, by our own passion, by our own holiness, we can go change the world. And we, we constantly had both this huge sense of purpose, which was really exciting, and this overwhelming sense of failure, like it's not working. As we read Romans, a similar thing happened to us that happened to Augustine, to Luther, to Wesley, to Karl Barth. Romans reminded us who changes the world. And that's the very testimony of the guy who wrote this letter. This is Paul's longest, most detailed letter in it. You'll We'll find we we won't tie all of the things together, but he quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, more than he does in any other letter. He's kind of pulling all of his thinking together. It's unique because most of the letters that Paul wrote, he was writing back to churches that he had already visited, people that he already knew. This again, he's introducing himself, hoping to spread the news about Jesus to the very ends of the earth, Spain. But who is Paul? Like, what's his deal? You might say that Paul is um, the most influential pen pal in history. I mean, after all, most of the New Testament are letters that Paul wrote. Could you imagine your emails becoming things that millions of people read every week? And then they say, this is the word of the Lord afterwards? Not most of my emails. They're too long to read, apparently. Paul has literally been read by billions of people. And... He has a pretty impressive resume. Maybe this is why, he, you know. He was a Jew who grew up in Tarsus, which was a Greek city. He he learned Greek culture and philosophy. He had a lot of it memorized. As a young man, he was particularly talented with Hebrew scriptures, and so he became a Pharisee, which is kind of like a, a local pastor in the local town, um, and he was a prominent leader. He grew in his prominence more and more. And we first meet Paul in the Bible, in the book of Acts, when he is leading the charge to end this Christian heresy. He's leading a mob in the first Christian execution. As far as he is concerned, when we first meet him, followers of Jesus are dangerous heretics. They're putting Israel at risk of God's wrath. And so they must be stopped for the well being of everyone. So, what happened? Did Paul change his mind? Did somebody, you know, sit him down and have the kind of conversation that we're going to try to learn how to have together? Is that what happened? No, <laughs> that's not what happened. On his way to arrest Christians in a city called Damascus, a glowing figure with a powerful voice appeared to Paul, knocks him off his donkey. Paul's like, who, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. You see, Paul wasn't converted exactly. He was caught. He was caught. You know what Paul says about all his fancy resume, all of his learning? He says, I, I consider all of that dung compared with the surpassing word of knowing Jesus, my Lord. Whenever he brings it up, he brings it up just to toss it aside and say that's not the important part. It may be impressive to some, but to Paul, that's not the big deal. The heart of Paul's identity is that his life was grievously, zealously headed in the wrong direction, unbeknownst to him. He was sinful. He deserved hell. And yet because Jesus called him, He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. That's who Paul is. His life was changed too. And that's what he's going to describe in this letter. That's the news that he has. He can't not announce the news. So I'm going to use the word news and the word gospel interchangeably for the next couple months. Okay, news and gospel. That's why he wants to come to Rome. That grace that caught him is which is contained in that news is the point of Paul's letter. It isn't just the news. It's not not just here's here's the news. It's a powerful explanation of the meaning, the implication of that news. Paul announces the news in the section that we read, verses two through four, and then he spins the rest of the letter basically saying, Do you realize what this means? Do you realize what a big deal this is? For 16 chapters, he's going to do that. So you want to hear Paul's news again? Let's look at it again, verses 2 through 4. This gospel—let's see, next slide there. This gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant of David with reference to the flesh— who was appointed the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the news? What was what even was that? What did we just heard? What, what, what's going on here? but let, let, let me' it's a, that's one long sentence. so let me let me summarize that for you. Hear ye, hear ye, Jesus is king, reigning right now, over everything. That's what that long sentence is saying. Jesus is king reigning right now over everything. Paul is get wrap your minds around this. What Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. And he is writing a letter to Rome saying Jesus, not Caesar is lord of all. That's going to get him in a bit of trouble, wouldn't you think? I mean, my goodness, that's what he's announcing. It's all right there in, in this verse right here. But he says it in a way that's kind of hard to follow, right? Because what he's connecting this news to is this small, strange group of people who have this long, strange history, the, the, the Jewish people. He's saying that Jesus is the Jewish king who will reign over everyone. So what do we care? (laughs) This is ancient history, right? We only hear about royal announcements according to some old prophecy and some old family line and movies and stuff. Like this is Lord of the Rings stuff, tracking the kings. That's why I love, I mean, come on, like what's the, what's the climax story of the Lord of the Rings called? The return of the king, right? It's this, this king who has this This ancient heritage, just like Paul is saying about Jesus. He has this ancient heritage according to some old prophecy, and he's going to return. Does that matter for our lives? (laughs) I mean, why would we care about some ancient king of a tiny kingdom that, as far as we know, isn't around right now? I mean, why would we care about David and the ancient Israelites? Why would we even care about the Roman Empire, aside from if you just like history? Why would it matter to us now? I mean, did Jesus overthrow the Roman Empire? Where's his kingdom? Obviously, for the news about Jesus that Paul is announcing, that it's such a big deal to him, to, for, that, for that news to mean anything to us or to the people that we love, we, we need a big picture of the story. So I'm going to introduce to you for the rest of this sermon to a picture, a literal picture that I literally drew. I know you'll be tempted to think a professional graphics team put it together. But uh, this, this is a fairly simple picture. It, you know, it doesn't tell the whole story. It's a tool, but it can help us tell the same story that Paul is telling about Jesus in terms that might make sense to us. And to the people that we care about. People who don't think they're waiting for a king. Because that's Paul's news. There's a Jesus is king. That's Paul's news. If you want to know what is the heart of the gospel, what's the main message of the gospel? There's a lot to say about Jesus's death and resurrection, of course. But the main news is that because of that, Jesus is king. So. To make sense of Paul's news, we have to go back. We have to go way back. We have to go to the very beginning of the world. Uh, As the Bible tells it, it starts like this. In the beginning, God created the, next slide, heavens and the earth. Thank you. Thank you. That circle's almost round. Yeah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You could also call it next slide the, the kingdom of God. This is this is God's rule and reign. It's Eden, it's paradise, it's it's the place our hearts long for. In this place, everything is joyfully, freely given and freely received. You know, everyone is fruitful and multiplying everyone and everything are living out their, their perfect purpose with joy, exactly according to their design. Everything is fruitful and multiplying in perfect harmony with everything else. Why? Because God is king, intimately and lovingly involved in his creation. There's no distinction between the heavens and the earth. They're perfectly overlapped. He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. He empowers them. He loves them. But this doesn't last, this story. A lie slithers into the garden And it says, if you rebel against God, you won't die. You'll be his equal. You won't need him. He's keeping you down. The good desire for glory that I think is part of our good design became a corrupted desire to rule in God's place. And so with that initial rebellion, rebellion, there was a great chasm, a great split. And it looks kind of like this. Uh, the heavens and the earth, so to speak, are separated. God's reign, God's area of rule, and ours. And there's this dividing line between them. It's represented in Genesis by an angel with a flaming sword. Heaven and earth were effectively divided. And in it, But in his love... God allowed his creation to experience what exactly what Adam and Eve wanted. This is the picture of normal life, you guys, where people are trying to figure it out on our own. We're trying to rule for ourselves instead of in the beautiful purple circle where it's freely given and freely received. It's a life in the red circle of earning and competing and dominating one another. This is the story of the, of the world we live in. This is the brokenness that we're all so familiar with. The strong subdue the weak. Resources are not treated as gifts, but as commodities to control others. But mercifully, heaven stays close. God continues to tether himself to the story. Early in the story, he whispers a rescue plan to a guy named Abraham. He says, follow me and through your descendants, I will bless you the nations. In other words, I'll bring heaven back through your descendants. And in small ways, that's what he did. Abraham's great-great-grandson Joseph turns the wicked nation of Egypt into a temporary Eden. That's the end of Genesis. Abraham's descendants later experienced gracious provision in the wilderness. God broke into their theater of operation. He fed them, guided them, spoke to them, and even began describing his kingdom to them. He gave them their own land. They're thinking maybe this is going to be the kingdom of God. So he starts doing things. Next slide. You know, okay, sorry, next slide. I skipped that one. You know, so in the wilderness, they build this tent, and, and God like comes to live in this tent. It's called the tabernacle. It's a little bit of heaven on earth. Eventually, after they turned the promised land into a deadly chaos, he gave them a king, King David, the king after God's own heart, the very king that parents, your kids are learning about upstairs right now. David was in the line of Judah. This is part of the whole big story from Genesis. And for centuries, the Jews were expecting a king in Judah's line, to save them, to make everything okay, to bring God's kingdom back. That was the promise they believed God had made. But here's the problem with David. I'll go to the next slide here. We have the kingdom of Israel. We, here's the problem with David he's, uh, he's far from perfect, his wrongs would uh, have him canceled in this day and age, he would be out. He was a, uh, a passionate and lustful warlord. But he also worshiped God really passionately. He listened to the prophets, and he dreamed of building God a permanent home in his kingdom. It's called the temple. That's a project that his son completed. In other words, David's kingdom, however imperfectly, uh, in David's kingdom— However, imperfectly, the Jewish people were given a glimpse of heaven and earth coming together. The temple was God's permanent home as far as they thought. The the temple had a room in it, a space in it called the Holy of Holies. And that was like where God lived on earth. The temple was designed and decorated to look like the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's, it's heaven on earth. It was the place God dwelt In in the days of David and his son Solomon, Israel had more peace, stability, and and happiness than ever before or since in their nation's history. Maybe they thought that the kingdom of heaven was returning, and the prophets were all about it. The prophets are the people who spoke for God to the kingdom, and they promised David and his son Solomon that there will always be a king in your line on the throne in Jerusalem. That's the promise that they held to, and it held. And that promise lasted for a while—14 generations. That's a long time. I don't, I don't know what was happening in my family 14 generations ago. For 14 generations, a descendant of David ruled in Jerusalem. The promise seemed to be holding, but here's a little problem with that. When Paul is saying, "Hey, there's a king in the line of David." That was a long time ago for the people in Rome, a long time ago. As a matter of fact, at least 14 generations since David's line fell have passed. Guys, like this, it's crazy that they're still holding on to this promise. Why? Well, because they wrote down the promises. And for all of these generations, they've been returning, uh, you know, of for a while to the temple, but then the temple is destroyed. And then they return in all of the places where they live to a book, a set of documents. And those documents tell them a story about who they are. And they stay weird. The Jewish people stay weird for generations. Do you know how bizarre the Romans thought the Jews were? All the weird things that the way they dressed, the way that they ate. I mean, it's wild. So they stayed weird all this time. It If you're a historian, this is miraculous. They were conquered by Babylon, who was then conquered by Persia, who was conquered by Greece, who was conquered by Rome. All of those empires are really good at taking you conquered people and making you into good Persians or Romans or whatever. Like, that's their specialty. They conquered the world and turned the world into them. And yet this little group of people stayed weird the whole time and held on to this promise against all odds about David's son. Keeping the strange cultures, keeping their language when other languages were forced upon them, keeping the Sabbath, eating weird food. So God took care of them. If, you, if you're if you familiar with the Bible, there's these stories, people like Queen Esther or Daniel who are, forced to be servants in these other emperors' kingdoms. And yet God takes care of them and preserves the people. All right, so that's all back then. Let's get back to Paul. What's Paul saying? Well, he's saying, again, that Jesus is that king. The king from the 14 generations ago line of David. Jesus is that king. And in Jesus, when Jesus came... Heaven came to earth. Here's what happened. Next slide. Heaven and earth overlap officially. In the cross, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, heaven is restored to earth. This is why it's such a big deal to Paul to go everywhere he goes saying, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. If you read in the stories about Jesus, he's sending his followers ahead of them, telling them, go, Announce that the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's going to happen after that? Jesus is going to walk into town. Like heaven has arrived in Jesus. So let's bring this home to ourselves. Though we are citizens of arguably the most powerful empire in history, we don't have a king. We don't quite get this. We're not tracing family lines that closely. In fact, we attribute the success and strength of our nation to the absence of a monarchy in a lot of ways. We're a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And yet, even in in the way that we talk politics, you know, take a deep breath, I'm going to kind of talk politics here. Even in the way that we talk politics, you guys, it betrays our deep desire for a king. Think about how much emphasis we put on who the president is and who the next president will be. Think about all—I mean, for, from the time that I've been able to vote, which—which was—which um, was the first time President Bush was elected. From then on, from Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden, think about the. The wild fervor in our country. Think about the billions of gallons of ink that have been spilled saying, if this person is in charge, then all of our problems will be fixed. We have a longing for a king. And if you study political science, the president just doesn't matter as much as we think he does by design. And yet we like, we talk about it every day. It's our headlines every day. We get really upset. People you maybe have family members that you don't talk to because of your political differences. Right? I mean, it is it's amazing how much emphasis we put on that. What is that? There's still something in us that says if the right king is on the throne, everything. We're still longing for this. We want heaven to come to earth, but we're doing it in the red circle. In all different ways. We still want the kingdoms of people to fix the problems. We long for a king who can bring peace. We long for that good kingdom. Why? Because we're made for it. We're made for it. C.S. Lewis says, you know, even a dying man of hunger, it still proves that his body was made for food. That's not a direct quote, but that's the idea. And in the same way, our longing for paradise, our longing for this kingdom, tells us that we were made for that world. So here's what Paul needs to sort out in Romans. If this news is true, it's going to play out in unexpected ways. I mean, he's writing to Rome. At this point, there's no empire on earth that is more powerful than the Roman Empire. You know who doesn't care that Paul says Jesus is king? Caesar. He doesn't care. In fact, he'll just kill a few of them to prove his point. All right, that, that's the deal. Like they, they are weak. They are powerless. How could it be that Jesus is king? How could Paul's news bear any weight? What does it mean for us? That's what the letter to the Romans is about. Here's what he says at the end of the section. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Sorry, next next slide, a couple slides more. We'll get to that other part. I'm not sh- ashamed of the gospel for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's saying this news, the news itself is God's, power. That's what he's going to explain. It's God's power, and it saves us. What power? Power to save us from the broken empires of earth and make us citizens of Jesus's kingdom. He goes on to say, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In this news, God's righteousness. Is revealed. God uses the news about Jesus, in other words, to tell us and the world what he's like. That's what he means when he says the righteousness of God is revealed. The way God relates, who God is, and how he relates to everyone. The righteousness of God is revealed through the news about Jesus. That's why it has to be entered through faith. I mean, th- th- this is the stunning thing. Paul is saying it, it doesn't spread by virtue of conquest. It spreads by virtue of faith, and he's going to explain faith a lot in this letter. He's going to get into faith a lot. Faith turns us around and surrenders our lives to this kingdom that reigns in the midst of worldly ones. This is just the message that Jesus announced his whole ministry was repent, turn around for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And it's unlike any kingdom in history. The coronation did not happen through conquest, but through defeat. I mean through death at the very if you could go back to one of those one, there that, that'll work right there. At the the way this kingdom spreads is a cross. An execution device. That's how Jesus conquers. He is killed by Rome. He didn't become the king in power by chopping off Caesar's head. Instead, he let Caesar's deputies execute him. And then when they thought that they were done, when they were dusting off their hands and moving on to the next rebellion, Jesus walked Out of his tomb. Caesar's most powerful tool, death, was powerless against this king. That's why it's through his resurrection that he's been appointed the king in power. And in his resurrection, he made a promise to bring all the rest of creation under his rule to make disciples of all nations. So, okay, wrapping up. Believers, This is our mission. Where would you possibly start if you wanted to explain that story, you know, and you didn't want to try to replicate my beautiful circles for your friends? Where would you possibly start if you're going to present to someone this idea that there's a king that you're really hoping for? How how would you tell that story? Here's what I suggest. In fact, I have an assignment for you, for all of you this week. I want you, the person that I asked you to think about, maybe even write their name down on your paper at the beginning. This week, I challenge you not to share this story with them, but to ask them two questions. Two questions. Be curious, all right? Number one, that person that you have in mind, what do they think is wrong with the world? Like, what do they think the problem that's sort of at the root of all the other problems is? They, they maybe haven't thought about it, but they think the world's messed up. So dig with them. Really, what do you think the root of this problem is? And when you've gotten to some sort of answer, the second question is, how do you think that problem gets fixed? That's my challenge to you. What's wrong with the world and how does it get fixed? Ask someone you care about who doesn't know Jesus those two questions and just see where the conversation goes. Here's what, here's what I predict. Underneath their answers, you will find a longing for the king, a longing for this good kingdom. That's what I hope you'll see. I want to hear how those conversations go. Paul's answer to those questions is laid out in his letter to the Romans. And I'm so excited for the next couple months to dig into it with you. But that news, that kingdom was won, not through conquest, but through death. Jesus called his shot at the Last Supper. He's gathered with his disciples and he takes the bread. And when he gives thanks for it, he says, this is my body which is given for you. Take this and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's such a weird thing to proclaim. We proclaim the king's death until he comes. But the only way he can come is because he rose. Friends, this is our hope. This is our life. And this is how we spread the news. Not by being powerful and impressive, but by offering ourselves to our neighbors. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you have made us citizens of your kingdom, not by not because we earned it, not because we were special or powerful but because you paid the price that we couldn't pay. You gave your life for us. And so now, Lord, we come to this table seeking to participate in your kingdom, but we're empty-handed. We are weak. Come, Lord, and show us who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.